One of the um, things that uh, I really love about the Scriptures, one of the things that I find so encouraging about them, is just how realistic they are about the life of faith. Um, in our study in the book of Judges that, that we're in at the moment, we're in a section that concentrates on the life and the leadership of a guy named Gideon. Now, Gideon is someone who in Hebrews 11, in that great long list of you know, the kind of heroes of the faith, Gideon gets included in that list as, a, as one of the heroes of, of faith. And it's true, he does display this confident faith in God. But it's also true that he has a lot of fear and a lot of doubt and a lot of uncertainty. As we'll see in our passage for today, he's actually not necessarily someone that I would hold up as the, the poster boy, if you like, as, as someone for a bold, unshakable faith in God. Yet he makes it into that list in, in Hebrews nonetheless. And so this is where I so value and appreciate the, the realness of the scriptural accounts. Because yes, Gideon is a hero, but he's actually a very ordinary one. He's actually one that, I mean, we might not be leading troops into battle, but there's so many other ways in which we can actually relate to him, that we can see our own experience of faith and fear um, at, at work within us as they are within him. And so I think he's very like you and me. And it's his very ordinariness then that actually points out to us the incredible graciousness of God towards us. So our passage today really has two sections. And as we look at them, we will see Gideon's faith and his fear throughout. So let's dive in and have a look. So we are in Judges chapter 6. Come on, I'm waiting for that um, screen to pop up, bud. There we go. Let's go. Next one. Judges chapter 6, and we are starting at verse 25. So let's just read this together. It says, That same night the Lord said to Gideon, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as an offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished, and the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. And they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. And so the people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, Are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, then he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave him the name Jeroboam that day, saying, Let Baal contend with him. We'll pause there before we go on. Let's just step back uh, to the events that precede what, what we've just read. And David spoke to us about this last week, about how the angel of the Lord found Gideon at the hiding at the bottom of the, the wine press. Uh, and even though he was there hiding in fear, 
Yet the angel called him a mighty warrior of God. And he promised um, him that, that Gideon would, would defeat the Midianites and that God would be with him. Remember that four-word phrase, I will be with you, that, that we learnt about last week, that, that came throughout um, the passage. And so then Gideon presents an offering to the Lord that's consumed by fire. And as, it, as, it has, as that happens, he realizes that he's seen the face of the Lord you know, face to face. And so God speaks to him again to tell him, peace, don't be afraid. And so then we come to our passage. And it starts with the phrase, on that same night. One of the commentaries I read suggested that God wanted to capitalize on Gideon's faith while it was still, you know, red hot. That, that he wanted to, to move while the conviction was still there. Now, I don't know if that's you know, if there's anything specifically there to say that that's the case. But, but either way, God speaks to him and he tells him to tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it and to then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. God, in effect, is initiating, I think, a showdown between himself and the gods that Israel had gone after, a showdown between Baal and the true and good God of Israel. And we see this not only in the fact that, that Gideon is to tear down Baal's altar, but also in the construction of a proper kind of altar on the top of this height. Gideon was to make a true altar, and the term's ambiguous as to what it's referring to, but I think it's fair to say that true worship of the true God makes for a true altar. And to make this altar in a space that was visible to all at, at the top of the hill, Gideon was to take the high ground, if you like, which is always then a good military strategy, to take the high ground for the God of Israel. And Gideon, we read, did as the Lord told him. Now this is in contrast to the Israelites in general, who God has already denounced for, for not listening to him and not obeying him. And in Gideon's obedience, we actually see then his faith. He was convinced that the God of Israel was the true, real, and living God, and that Baal and Asherah, that they were just pretenders. He'd been converted, if you like, and so his faith is on display as he then obeys what God has said to him. But it's not only his faith that's on display, because we also see his fear. We read, because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did this act, you know, at night rather than in the daytime. Now, he wasn't afraid of Baal. He willingly destroyed his altar because he knew that he was nothing in the face of the real God. So he wasn't afraid of Baal, but he was still afraid of the people. And if we're honest, we understand this, don't we? We are fully convinced that Jesus is the saviour of, of the world, and specifically that he's our saviour and Lord. But when we have to tell someone that we're a Christian, when we go to tell someone about Jesus and, and life in him, we, we hesitate, we hold back, we have fear. I mean, Gideon might be a hero of the faith, but he's an ordinary one. He faces fears just like we do, and so he's one that we can relate to. Well, it quickly becomes evident 
even though this act was done at night, it becomes evident that Baal's altar has been demolished. And it's somehow found out that Gideon is the one who's responsible. And his fear's evident again when the people demand to Joash that you bring out your son. Now, Joash needed to bring out his son because Gideon is not to be found. He's off hiding somewhere. And we've all done that too. We, we, we dropped the bomb of Jesus loves you, you need to be saved, and then we, we run and we hide and we don't answer the phone for the next you know, week or, or whatever it might be. He's in hiding and at this time, he lacks the confidence in God f- for him to stand up before, uh, for him before others. But Joash, this priest of Baal, is actually first and foremost father of Gideon. And so with the worship of God of his God on the line or the life of his son, you know, these things are at, at balance before him. He actually chooses to defend his son. He says if Baal really is a God, then he can defend himself if someone breaks down his altar. It sounds like maybe he wasn't such a great priest of Baal, that he wasn't really that much of a devoted follower after all. It might have just been a, a pragmatic, perhaps even a financial choice to be the one to, to manage his altar. And so in this showdown that goes on between God and Baal, it's the God of Israel who comes out as the victor. And the people see it because Gideon lives on. Baal doesn't smite him because Baal has no power. And instead, this so-called fertility God is proven to be impotent. So then let's read on in the second segment of today's passage. Now we start from verse 33. Now, all the Midianites... Amalekites and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizarites to follow him. He sent messages throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet, him, meet them. Now Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I'll place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me. Let let me just make one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time, make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night, God did so. Only the fleece was dried. All the ground was covered with dew. Now, this is the scene for which Gideon is probably, uh, I would say, the, the most famous. When... When we're seeking to know God's will, you know, do I marry this person? Do I take this job? Do I move to that place? Do I go to this church? We put out a fleece, and that's the expression. I'm just putting out a fleece. God, if this traffic light turns green in the next five seconds, I know that this idea is from you. God, if you want me to take this new opportunity, you'll get me fired from my current job, but they'll still provide me a good and positive reference. God, I'm really doubting your love for me at the moment as I run late for this appointment. If you do love me, let me get a car park right near the door. 
God, if you want me to stay in this marriage, then, then make the next song that comes on the secular radio station that I'm listening to be a Christian worship song. Now, I might be a little bit ridiculous with my examples, but really, are they any different from what Gideon asks? And are they not the kinds of things that we actually find ourselves saying to God at different times? I may be having a bit of fun with the examples, but, but whether it's a cure from cancer, a, a sign in the sky, or, or a dry blanket when everything else is soaked, we lay out these tests for God, we put out a fleece, just to make sure that we've got His will right. And the motivation is good, isn't it? We, we want to make sure that we are doing what God actually wants us to do. So the motivation is good. And that's all that Gideon was doing. But Gideon didn't need the fleece to know what God wanted him to do. Now hold on to that thought for a moment and we'll come back to it. Before we get back to that, that thought, let's, let's ask a question that underlies any, any thought of putting out a fleece and to ask, how does God speak? I mean, we talk quite boldly about God speaking to, to Gideon and, uh, and to other people throughout the Scriptures and even in our own lives. Yeah, God spoke to me and, I, I just, and this is what happened. But, but we can't just assume that we all know what that means or, or what that even looks like. So Gideon is actually quite helpful for us in seeing a range of ways in which God speaks. It starts back in what David covered last week, where an angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. Now this sounds spectacular. You know, typically when we think of angels, we think, you know, shining robes, wings, like powerful, muscular, glorious, intimidating, you know, choirs of angels, like, not, mind you, choirs and muscular, anyway, not all those words seem to go together, but, but we think, you know, angels, terrifying and, and whatever. But in the story, the, the sense of it is that it wasn't. Gideon talks with him, with the angel, respectfully, but, but not with attempted worship or adoration like you see at, at other times in the Scriptures, with other angel encounters. In fact, it seems like he doesn't realize that it was the angel of the Lord until after his offerings consumed. Perhaps Gideon was someone that the writer of Hebrews had in mind when they wrote, Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So how does God speak? He speaks through angels. But sometimes angels just look like, look like and sound like just the ordinary people in our lives who we're having our conversation with. We see, though, too, that God can also speak with a clear, perhaps even audible, at least to us, with a clear and audible voice. And as Gideon responded to fear after the angel had disappeared, the Lord said to him, Peace be to peace to you. Now, it may not have been something heard out loud, um, but we can hear a clear sense of, uh, a clear word from God. We, we get a, a full sentence that makes sense, and it comes to us as clear as if someone were standing next to us and saying it to us. Then I, I think we see that God can speak to us in our dreams. Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame is probably the most uh, best-known biblical dreamers, but, but he's not alone in that. It's not clear, but we could suspect that on that very night, 
that the way that God spoke to Gideon was through his dreams. Now, for myself, I very rarely remember my dreams, but Maren regularly does, and she delights to tell me the weird and wonderful things that they are uh, and to tell me, you know, before they fade away. They are crazy and mixed up. But but a, a God dream is different. A God dream is clearer. It's memorable. It leaves an impression with us. It stays with us. So dreams then are another way that God can speak to us. Then there is perhaps what is one of the most common ways, and that is you know, having, a, having a sense or an impression, or we might call it a leading from God. Look at this in, in what we've just read. The Midianite army has come. And we read then that the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and then he blows his trumpet to call the troops to war. Now, unlike the other things that we've seen in this chapter so far, God didn't tell him to do that. And yet, as the story unfolds, we know that God did, in fact, tell him to do that. So how how did it happen this time? How did God speak in this instance? Well, I think it's fair to say that um, having the Spirit of God on him, that Gideon had had a sense, an inkling, a, a nudging, that now was the right time to respond to the situation in this way. We, too, have the Spirit of God in us. And, and we feel it. We get the sense that we should go and sit with that person. We get the nudge that we need to give that person a call. We have the inkling that something's going on within that group and they need help. Now, we might hold this one loosely, being, being tentative about acting on it, because it's not as, not as clear and as, as explicit to us. But when we do act, we will usually see a confirmation that it was God, in fact, and that He was speaking through us in that way. As we continue working sequentially through our passage, we next see how God speaks as Gideon began, begins to lay out his fleece tests. He says to God at that time, If you will save Israel from my hand as you have promised. And he also says, um, uh, Then I know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Now, don't miss what's going on there. Gideon is affirming that God has already spoken to him. God speaks to us through the the received word. And for us today, that's primarily the scriptures that that we have in our hand. It's It's a living and active word through which God speaks to his people. We may not always like what it has to say. We we may still go off on our own and choose otherwise, but he speaks to us through it. And so I want to come back to that point that I made before for us to to hold on to. Gideon didn't need the fleece to know what God wanted him to do. Because he'd already been told. It was already received. So when your mom or or your boss is on the warpath and you know that you could avoid being on the receiving end of that, if you just tell this, this little lie, you don't need to test God about that one. He's already spoken clearly about telling the truth. When you're unhappy in your marriage and you're thinking that this, uh, sorry, when you're unhappy in your marriage and you think about this other person a lot and that thinking maybe your life would be better with them and that, you know, I just married the wrong person and, and you're weighing up what you do there, you don't need to seek a sign from God about what you should do. 
He's already spoken clearly about faithfulness and fidelity and avoiding adultery. God had already spoken clearly to Gideon about him being the one to save Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon knew it. You've promised this. You've said this. He already knew. He did not need the fleece. And yet, God in his grace still spoke to Gideon through this means as well. God does speak through signs. He does that, that is one of his ways. Sometimes they are quite ordinary and sometimes they are quite miraculous. But in lots of ways, they are perhaps the least convincing way that God speaks to us. I mean, Gideon laid out that fleece the first time and he had conclusive proof as his first fleece was soaked through with dew. And yet, he still needed another sign. Also, look at Jesus. It did not matter how many people he fed with how little bread. It didn't matter how many people he'd healed with, from conditions that they'd had since birth. They still demanded more and different signs from him to prove that he was who he was, even though he'd already done it countless times before. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of a rich man who lived in luxury and then of a beggar named Lazarus who lay at this rich man's gate. Now both these men died. With poor Lazarus, he went to Abraham's side while the rich man was in torment in Hades. And he begged Abraham to please send Lazarus back to his family to warn them about what was to come in the afterlife. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They already have the received word of God spoken to them. But the rich man thought, though, that someone coming back from the dead would be a sign that his family could not avoid, could not deny, and that they would have to listen to. But Abraham replied, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The sign could not be any more impressive, but he says, then then they're not going to listen. If they haven't listened to this, they're not going to listen to that. So maybe I'm making too big a point out of it, but I think think even Gideon knew that he was pushing pushing it with his signs because when he's asking for the second sign, he, he prefaces it with, don't be angry with me. He knows that he's pushing it. He knows that it's reasonable, God, that you would be angry with me because I'm testing you yet again. Because you've already spoken to me time and time again, and here I am just asking one more time for another confirmation. So why is he after this confirmation? Why does he pursue these signs? Well, it's not because of his faith, but because of his fear. Faith motivated him to blow the trumpet and rally the troops. Faith would have him believe in what God had already promised him. But it's his fear that prompts him to make sure that he's got it right. It's his fear that that makes him not move ahead without a further word from God. I mean, after all, he's already hidden from his family and the, the local villagers. Now he's about to face off against all the Midianites and Malachites and the other eastern peoples. I mean, if he was hiding and terrified then, man, he's uh, out of his mind with fear now. So for all that I've said, 
that he didn't need the fleece because God had clearly spoken. In actual fact, Gideon did need the fleece because he was fearful and he wanted to know that God was with him in it as he moved forward. And so notice this theme throughout Gideon's story that God is gracious to him in all of his fears and doubts and uncertainty. As an ordinary hero of the faith, Gideon shows that it's much less about us and so much more about God. See, God doesn't get angry at him about his doubts and he doesn't judge him for his fears. Instead, despite them, or perhaps even because of them, God still uses him. Gideon, in all of his ordinary ordinariness shows that it's God who is the real hero and that it's God who is the one who is at work. Last Sunday morning, I was in Bob's spot in worship leading in, in the service and to be honest, I was, I was tired last Sunday morning and, and I wasn't feeling it. And so to try to make something happen you know i added in some extra repeats of things that we hadn't rehearsed and you know they were a bit clunky and and awkward and then there was a song that i just played in the entirely wrong key um and everyone else just had to suffer and go along with that it was fine for me i didn't mind but but literally everyone else had to figure that out and it gets hot up here uh, under the lights but i think I, i sweated out an extra measure just out of the embarrassment of, of what I'd done in that, in that moment. It was not my best Sunday. And yet, from a number of people, I've received feedback that would indicate something different. I was very ordinary, and God was the hero. God was the one at work, in, despite, or because of my weakness. No doubt you have had experiences of that as well. Someone comes to you for help and you fumble and bumble your way through things. You have no idea if you've made any sense, if any sentence was coherent. And yet God is the hero. And he works and he uses your weak and feeble efforts. It's what we see in Gideon. It's what we see in our own lives. Uh, I think what Gideon's story shows us is that God works and uses us despite our fears, despite our doubts, despite our uncertainties, despite our insecurities, despite our inabilities. He uses us despite our ordinariness. He takes, though, what we can give, and then he does something more with it. Even if our fears are the size of a mountain, our faith needs to only be as big as a mustard seed because it's so much less about us and so much more about God. God, and in the midst of all that, God is ongoingly, incredibly gracious to us. The other thing that Gideon's story shows us is that God speaks and that what he promises, he fulfills. And so when we hear his voice, we can obey him with confidence and faith and trust. For all the fear that Gideon experienced, at the end of the day, he did do the things that God said to him. Which is all the more incredible, really, when you consider that he had only a pretty limited knowledge of God. We, however, have his word in our hands. And we have his capital W word, Jesus, in our lives. 
So we need to know God's word, to, to hear his voice to us, and by his grace at work in us and for us to do the things that he says for us to do. And as we do so, we'll see him at work in a way that is gracious beyond our, our deserving, but incredible beyond our imagining. So let's pray to that end then. God, I thank you for the witness of your word that shows us ordinary people who yet you use because you are gracious and glorious and good. We thank you for the example of Gideon who had a faith in you that was tempered by, by fear and doubts and yet, God, he displayed obedience as you displayed your grace. And so, God, may we go from our time today encouraged by the story of Gideon, encouraged to, to hear your voice speaking to us and to respond in, in obedience to it, but encouraged even more so that in our weakness, in our ordinariness, that you are so, so good and that you continue to be gracious to us and that you work and act despite us. We actually thank you, God, that it's so much less about us and so much more about you. We thank you that you are the one who is the hero, not us. Because we are very ordinary, but you are glorious. And so to you, God, we entrust ourselves and our lives. May we walk in faith, increasing faith and obedience as you show your grace to us in all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.